0: Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I'm the host, Sean Boyce. I'd like to welcome my guest to the show today, Jacob Jalabois, co-founder of Check and Making Product Sense. Hi, Jacob. How are you? And welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Sean. Thank you so much, man. Glad to be here.
0: Yeah, super excited to talk about a couple of things, which is great. But before we do that, if you wouldn't mind, so our audience can become a little bit more familiar with you, can you talk a little bit more about your background and how you got to where you are today?
1: absolutely uh, started out as a commercial photographer for a few years about eight years um, transitioned into marketing and somewhere in the four or five years I was in the marketing world fell in love with design um started off with the the traditional graphic design route for ads and then slowly found my way uh, designing websites and that um, was kind of where the love for product design, was birthed and then from there I I couldn't wait to actually work on a product myself that um, I could I could take from zero to something and it'd be kind of my obsession for a few years and so I, I moved out of marketing and started the company that I now um, lead product for called Check with my co-founder uh, we started that about four years ago and I lead product and. Customer success there. And I have uh, enjoyed every step of the journey despite the difficult moments of it. And then uh, recently, as of I guess about nine months ago, I started a newsletter called Making Product Sense. And I write to about 3,000 readers from basically every major tech company you can imagine and try to break down learnings from uh, building product and building companies from some of the folks who do it best.
0: Amazing. Thank you, Jacob. And that's how we originally got connected your newsletter, which I'm a big fan of as well. And I know we're going to talk more about as much. Yeah, absolutely. And so because of who we're typically talking to mainly on this show, which is other people, other aspiring B2B SaaS product founders, people that are in it, growth stage mode, that type of stuff. We're going to kind of dive in there first to talk a little bit more about check. And the first question I have for you, because you talk more about this as a part of your background, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about how your background in marketing helped in terms of what you've been doing at check so far.
1: Yeah, so uh, I'm going to be honest, it probably was a negative more than a positive. Um, And and here's why. In in B2B SaaS, um, it is more often than not going to be sales driven. And as a designer who doesn't like to do sales, (laughs) and someone who had a background in marketing, my gut instinct was to make a marketing push first. And so for the first two years, no, for the first three years, we were marketing focused. We were talking ads, content, kind of brand recognition initiatives, things that would hopefully be kind of a bottom up SaaS uh, uh, approach. And to be honest with you, it it was mediocre at best. Um, The folks that we were serving, need a bit more of a high touch approach um, as is often the case with B2B because you're you're inserting yourself into the core of their business in a way that is incredibly dangerous if you do it wrong because you can screw up a lot of things in their in their business. Um, and so you have to build trust there and marketing is a slower way to build trust than than direct sales. Um, When you build that relationship, it it changes the game. So we actually transitioned about a year ago toward a sales approach. My co-founder, the CEO, is leading that charge. And I have kind of taken the um, more indirect approach uh, leading customer success. So folks who are already a part of Check, um, who have questions or want to level up their business, I'm usually the one touching base with them. And allows me to get that that face-to-face time with them, while um, my founder kind of handles that that initial sale.
0: Nice, that's helpful perspective as well. First question there is going to be: How has the transformation to the sales-led approach gone thus far? Do you have enough data in order to kind of compare the two approaches, and is performance better?
1: Yes, to both of those questions. So when we initially started transitioning, we spoke with a guy named Martin Roth, um, who is the sales leader at a big company down in New Orleans, Louisiana um, called Level Set. It just recently sold for five hundred million bucks. It's a big deal. Um, oh, yeah. This guy is basically the, the the guy that that helped grow it from a sales perspective. He started as one of their first um, sales hires, and then actually grew into the sales leader that he is today. So we took his advice very seriously because he started from ground zero and built something uh, very successful. And his advice to us was, number one, you're not charging enough for the value you provide. These people are relying on you to run their business. You provide extreme value there. Charge what you're worth. That's number one. If you're not charging what you're worth, you're, you're going to have a long, hard road ahead. Um, when we raised prices immediately, it was, it was a positive trajectory that was that was beautiful the second thing was um transitioning away from marketing and in, into sales and he had this really great way about him of just saying stop trying to find a playbook and just do the work um and i think this is something that as a founder who doesn't like to do sales it really was a struggle for me it was uncomfortable it didn't sit right because it meant I had to pick up the phone and potentially get rejected. That was tough. Um, And then I I called a buddy of mine who was also... He was the chief revenue officer of another company down in New Orleans um, and had some great success there. Serial entrepreneur, fantastic friend he said the same exact thing i was like dang it <laughs> i <laughs> should probably listen <laughs> <consistent>, right yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and and like i said you know i, I don't, i'm not the one doing cold outreach or anything i i get to connect with people who are using our product every day and and that's where i'm comfortable my co-founder is phenomenal at the at the outbound sales stuff so um it's a good split but yeah once we shifted to that model um it has been up and to the right since then man i can't express how difficult but rewarding that transition was and um we've we've had record revenue the last few months in a row um we've seen a lot more people convert out of uh being thrilled with what solutions we could provide because they we actually get to show them what it does instead of them having to poke around and figure it out themselves right and that's nice. that's tough um as a as a more tactical example on the receiving side of this. I remember when we first um, found HubSpot and, and got a sales call from one of their reps. And he spent probably 3 hours with us over the course of a week, You know, mm-hmm. over a few calls and converted us because we were excited about what the product was doing for us and what it could do for us. And he held our hand every step of the way. And that's the sort of stuff that is impactful for business. So.
0: That's a great example. And what's interesting about this part of the story is out there in the wild, so to speak, as you're Googling around or reading whatever the latest may be, you hear a lot of the opposite. Isn't people trying to really push for low touch? People trying to push For for exclusively, you know, SaaS, maximize your margins, make it automatic, all this kind of stuff, right? But the essence of what you just mentioned is often lost in that, is the experience that you can create. In helping people move through your activation points, right, and that That's may right. not be happening automatically. If it isn't, there's something else going on that you probably need to address. This is a perfect example of doing something like that. So exactly, that um, I, it's really interesting. If yeah. I could
1: show you, if I could show you my uh, my text messages right now, I would probably forty to fifty percent of the text messages in my phone are clients. Um, nice. and it's just one of those, one of those examples of, you know, we're, we're texting or calling these people every single day. Um, and they love it. I, I had a guy reach out to me yesterday at like 10 PM and I just texted him back and said, Hey, man, I'm going to have to touch base with you in the morning, but we'll get you taken <laughs> care of. And like, he respected that and, you know, we, we got him taken care of and I know he appreciated that. And so, um, yeah, that That's that great. personal touch makes a difference.
0: Goes a long way, especially for the right product. Right. The other part i want to mention is it isn't just like in the hubspot example and what you guys are doing a check there might be some time some extra time invested up front goes a long way and if your ltv if the numbers still make sense you're not necessarily cannibalizing your margins because if it's still a SaaS product if you're still talking about recurring revenue right and you're talking about a solid ltv then that investment makes sense i'm curious whether or not you guys have taken a look at that yet um but really where i'm getting at is Probably some of the questions for some of our listeners are going to be, well, but how well does that scale? So I don't know what your sure. workload or what that looks like in terms of your current team and how manageable and sustainable that is. Love to hear you talk a little bit more about that, or at least what how your team has discussed that.
1: Absolutely. So the first thing to note is you want an LTV that makes sales worth it and the time you expend on sales worth it, which is part of the reason why we raised our prices. Not only is charging what you're worth important, you also need to make sure that what you're charging is going to be uh, appropriate for the customer acquisition channels that you're using. So if we were back in our, you know, call it a year and a half ago, those numbers that we were getting were not sustainable on a sales uh, approach but they were sustainable on a marketing approach. So what we had to do when we switched to sales was rethink pricing from the ground up. Thankfully, if you're doing B2B and you're doing sales, the product that you're selling, hopefully is going to be providing tremendous value already. And so raising your prices probably is going to be the right move more often than not. A lot of founders have a tendency to underprice. And the reason is it's scary to hear no. And so you want to make it a no brainer. Yes. And so you'll classically undercharge. Um, what what the experts will tell you if you start talking with folks who've been there and, and gotten a t-shirt is when you raise your prices, you're raising the perceived value of your product as well. And so oftentimes your conversion rates go up, your loyalty goes up, your retention. It it really does craft a different message whenever you're charging according to the value you're providing. So that that's the first thing about switching to sales uh, with the with the context of LTV. And you mentioned scaling. So this is something that we haven't gone deep into yet because like I said, this is very new. So my, my co-founder has been leading the charge on that. And we are now starting to talk with our board and other friends who are founders and have scaled sales teams to figure out what that looks like. And um, one one resource I would mention to your listeners is the book Founding Sales. It's fantastic. It teaches you you know, if you're a founder, what is the, the bedrock you, that you have to lay? And then as you start to find a script that works, a playbook that works, how do you package that in a way that can be scaled to two people and then to five people and then 10? And... Honestly, we're in the trenches figuring that out right now. So I don't have a lot of wisdom to share on that yet, but maybe we can do a revisit in a couple of years and we'll be more knowledgeable.
0: Happy to do that. That would be really cool. Uh, it's good to know that the conversations are going on. It sounds like that's going to be relevant and in a good way. Oh, the, a couple definitely. of things you've said or something you've said a few times thus far, which I think will be a good topic to dive into as well, too, because I see a lot of this myself as in founders, especially those running companies or products like saas get pricing wrong. I'd love mm-hmm. for you Hugh, to talk a little bit more about what how you've articulated thus far which is charging what you're worth. How do you go about quantifying that like you're running product right so like what's your pricing strategy best advice how did you guys figure it out that type of stuff.
1: Yep, so the the best resource that I have on this is Patrick Campbell who is the founder of Profitwell and recently sold to Paddle for I believe it was something like 200 million. Um, and, and there's a reason that they sold for such a high price tag. The guy's a genius. Um, he has poured his, his, you know, last 10 years of his life into understanding pricing better than anyone else. Um, if you go read his blog or his Twitter, he's going to be dropping pricing nuggets all over the place. And it is absolute gold start there. If you're curious about pricing, as far as the, the tactical approach we took, um, the first question that we put on the table as an exercise to help us price better and and i believe this may have been from martin uh who advised us on this but what price sounds crazy and once you have a price that sounds crazy that's a good starting point point. <laughs> and the reason is like i said we classically tend to undercharge so let's say you, uh, let's say you're charging 20 bucks a month as like a, a bottom bottom-up uh, SaaS product you're you're wanting to raise your prices, but you don't know where to start. One of the exercises that we were recommended to do was do something that feels absolutely inconceivable that someone would pay, like a thousand bucks. You know, twenty dollars to a thousand bucks is just <laughs> inconceivable. And pick up the phone, call some people, and try to sell them at a thousand bucks a month. He said you could you could create a landing page with a Stripe checkout link in there for a thousand bucks a month in in twenty minutes, and have something ready to to actually take credit cards and and get the sale right. So do that, and if people say if hundred percent of people say no, okay, drop it down eight hundred bucks. Let's see what happens there. You know, (laughs) but the crazy part is. I bet you someone's going to say yes. And when someone says yes, you have just sold, what is that? 50 X what oh, your
0: like, original price was. I don't do public mass, 50 so customers I, at once. I, no,
1: that's right. 50 X, yeah. 50X, yeah. Um, so 50 customers in one call, like, that, that just goes to show the power of sales and, and raising your prices. So start there. Um, we ended up landing on a price that we thought was fair. And also, um, you know, a, a crazy multiple of what we were originally charging. And so far, our, our close rates, my co-founders close rates, I should say, have been 30 to 35% with this, which is solid for really? for sales. Um, and and if your sales are higher than that, you probably need to raise your prices some more. Another <laughs> a good point. So, yeah, just something else to kind of keep in mind. Um, but ultimately, it's an experiment. Um, that's something Patrick Campbell will say in all of his articles is you should be trying something every quarter. If you're not adjusting pricing or adjusting the packages or adjusting the, you know, the frequency of charging, whether it's per month, per year, quarterly, whatever, um, then you're not experimenting enough because you've got to dial it in over time. It's not going to, you're not going to get it right out of the gate.
0: I think that's a great sentiment at the end there as well, too. Thank you for sharing those examples. Other ways I've heard it described as well, too, because you're right. Every time I've done it, it's been T and E as I call it, right? Trial and error, really yep. figure out what's the right sweet spot. And there's a million different ways to come at it. One of the ones I've Absolutely. heard that I think is a good visual as well too, is start somewhere and double it every time until people start saying no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yep, yep. And you'll get an idea where the ceiling may be on it. That's really cool. That's right. How about from the perspective of like calculating ROI or case studies and stuff like that with your customers? Have you guys done any, any of that or translated to the dollars and cents? And has that been relevant at all for your customers?
1: So the, the case study part we haven't done yet, uh, or at least not in the more broader sense that we would like, where someone can kind of see the the full story of that customer and what kind of return they got. But we do have testimonials, you know, quotes from these customers who have seen some pretty incredible ROI. And we have those on our website. We we use those in sales calls. Um I I think the Next evolution of that is a more fuller case study, especially as we're starting to move up market and we're we're talking Excellent. with bigger names who have bigger crews who have more um more on the line, and they want again it goes back to that factor of trust. They want to know that you're going to take care of them, and bigger, more put together case studies are going to definitely help showcase that a little better. So uh, that is the next step. But right now the the ROI is. Basically, as we're on the call with people and they make a quote that we like, we jot that down. Or if they nice. send us a uh, a response to like an NPS survey or something like that, yep. um, that has a really great quote in it, we'll snag that um, and use it. And that's been really helpful for sure.
0: Excellent. Yeah, that that social proof is critical, right? Helps exactly. other people learn what it might do for them. Helps put yep. their mind at ease in terms of the value other people are getting so they can kind of put themselves in the right mindset as well, too. I think that's also a great tip is I tell this to folks as well. When you're getting positive feedback, that's the perfect opportunity to ask for, hey, can we share that with others? Like, can we get them on the website? Yes. Can we quote you on that That type of thing, right? Perfect opportunity exactly. to do so or ask for that kind of feedback. That's awesome. Thank you, Jacob. Um, I definitely want to talk more about your newsletter. But before I do that, um, let's talk about what's next for check. You want to talk about kind of what's next from here?
1: Yeah, so we, we've got a lot in the pipeline uh, as any... Good SaaS product does. Um, the The first step right now is we're gearing up for our busy season. So we serve home service providers, and these folks often have really busy summers. That's when your you know air conditionings are breaking down, your grass is growing, you know trash is falling on your roof, and you got to get it replaced. A lot of stuff happens in the summertime, and and so this is busy season for us. This means a few things. Means uh, we cannot rest. We are building and shipping as fast as we possibly can. Um, and so we've got a lot of like quality of life updates coming here very shortly that we've punted on for a long time because we were trying to get bigger, uh, more impactful features out. But we've got to clean this up since as we're moving into the busy season, people are going to be using this app every single day. So that's step number one. Um, as you may imagine, as most SaaS companies... Probably imagine uh, it's time to start thinking about AI. Um, this is mm-hmm. a broader conversation. If you're if you log on to Twitter, you will see a tweet about AI, right? Definitely. <laughs> so um, we are we are considering the best ways that AI can provide value to our users in the context of check. One mistake that I think a lot of companies make is they try to force it into the product when it doesn't make sense. And it ends up becoming bloat and bloat is the number one killer of product retention. And because people just hate using it, right. Or maybe not the number one killer, maybe like horrible bugs would be the number one killer, but maybe like a close second, right? But it's definitely a death. (laughs) Exactly. And so we want to do something that's going to be useful and also, um, crazy in a way that the industry has never seen. Uh, we have superpowers at our fingertips now. Uh Bill Gates has been quoted as saying this is the next ep- or, or the greatest evolution of technology since the internet. And you know I wasn't around, I wasn't in an age to build products and companies whenever the internet was on its rise. But now I have a company. I have a team. We can actually build at the advent of artificial intelligence and what that means for um uh for changing the user experience for the better and and so we're thinking a lot about that we don't I'm not gonna get too much in the weeds on specifics since that's not dialed in quite yet, but it's going to provide a lot of really interesting um use cases across the board for users uh for for the our users as well as the the homeowners who they're serving so exciting stuff.
0: Absolutely. Great point. And good sentiment as well, too, on the don't force it element, right? Seeing a lot of that in my travels as well, also. Oh, for sure. Shiny object syndrome, like, oh, man, I need to figure out how to like force this. Like, I saw that mo- most recently, probably with blockchain. As in like As Oh, for sure. Oh, let's just add blockchain. <laughs> well, <it's>, well <laughs> yeah. what's the use case, right? Like, We don't necessarily want to take the tool and force it into the application. We want to understand what's a job to be done and then figure out what the best tool is to solve that. So that's a really good point of distinction. Um, Thank you for sharing the story about Jack. We'll definitely have you back to talk more about that. Um, But before we wrap up this episode, I want to talk more about your newsletter, which is originally how we got connected. We tell awesome stories, but I don't want to take the thunder away from you. Tell us a little bit more about the newsletter, what it is, and how you got started.
1: Yeah, so whenever I originally started, My goal was to write to other product leaders like myself. Um, And I I went through a few evolutions of the newsletter. It it started by breaking down frameworks, but I started to realize that frameworks tend to take away from the art of product, um, otherwise known as product sense. And it tends to force you into a certain path that, might not be the best path. Um, I know this because I did it. The first two years of learning the art of product, I was using framework after framework, and I over-engineered the product side of, of this company. When you're a startup, you don't need a million frameworks. You need to understand why a product needs to work a certain way. How do you understand what that is Then how do you make a plan to get to it? And then how do you execute on it? That's like fundamentally what has to happen on the side of product. So I actually started moving away from the the framework side and instead started to dissect companies and, and products that I thought were great and try to better understand why they were great. Is it because they have great branding and they're like exciting and fun and everywhere on the internet? Is it because they understand how to talk to consumers and, and how to guide you through the product? Is it because they provide ridiculous value and it doesn't matter if they have horrible branding and horrible onboarding, you're gonna, you're gonna love it anyway. <laughs> like what are the different pieces of the puzzle that actually matter when it comes to building great products? So I started dissecting that and and it grew from just doing deep dives on specific companies to now mixing in some interviews with great founders and product leaders who will cast vision for their company and then my my favorite thing to write is the deep dives i do following those interviews with, where i try to ask i try to answer the question what would the world look like if this company succeeded in accomplishing their vision and the reason is founders have grandiose visions that are far bigger than the version of the company that exists today. And so it's exciting to hear what their version of the future is and the impact that's going to have on us, assuming that they keep executing. And so it not only gets you excited about the future and, and lets, you have, lets you live in the future a little bit, it also um, lets you back math it and say, okay, what's the path there? How do we actually execute in a way that's gonna realize that vision? Um, and so I'll often break down you know, my version of what I think their strategy could be to get there based on the little nuggets that they have dropped in the interview and, and in my research. And that's just a fun exercise for me and a lot of other people really enjoy it. Um, the recent one I released on Linear is one of my most popular articles ever um linear has an incredible following of course and so they have been um yeah it's been popping off and it's fun it's a blast it's awesome if you're in product if anyone's in product i think they would get a kick out of this newsletter um at the very least coming along and and dreaming with me so
0: love it it's very cool super interesting my first question is follow-up to that is how has writing the newsletter or doing the research for making product sense helped you with the product work that you're doing at check and any, just a general understanding about that role and the impact it can have.
1: Tremendously, tremendously. I already mentioned the first one, which is I, I made the realization that frameworks weren't necessarily the answer and it it may be more tactical than that. And so, so that actually made a big impact in the way that I run product. Now, the second thing is when I learn about a specific approach that a company's taking to product I, I get to analyze it in the context of check. And I get to say, does this fit in our company? And if it does, great, let's implement it. If it doesn't, why does it not? Because it may be that it's the business model that is unique and makes this particular thing work. And maybe it's the industry or the target audience. There's a million different things that that don't work for most companies, but work great for some companies and being able to di- dissect that and not just copy and paste frameworks and, and ideas from company to company is is the way that you learn the nuances of building product and, and gaining that product sense, right? Hence the, the names, making products. Love it. Spot on. <laughs> I
0: love thematic names. <laughs> um, thank you for sharing that. I guess next question For sure. here, because I remember reading your story about Waze, which is a really cool story. I mm-hmm. encourage anybody to go back and read that. It was fascinating. How to tackle Thank a giant you. like Google and Maps and things like that and do it with a community. Really cool aspect. Yes. You. You're a great storyteller. Um, Thank you very much. My question to you is going to be, since you've done this over and over again at this point, is what is your favorite story thus far or your favorite element from which product story that you want to share with us here?
1: Okay. Yeah, this is, this is great. Arc, the browser from the company called The Browser Company, um, is my favorite one. And I don't even know if the vision I cast is the same vision that they have for the product, but it got my wheels turning like no other product has. There is something unique about a browser in the sense that it blends into your workflow so seamlessly that you forget that you have to use a browser you forget you're using it it's just a portal to the internet right cool and so what ends up happening with arc is it runs web apps so well that you don't even need your desktop apps it's just better to run it in your browser because you can organize your tabs really well you can do split screen really easily you can switch between spaces in arc which are effectively like profiles in chrome uh, where you can be logged into the same tool from different accounts, depending on which space you're in. So I have a personal space and a workspace and a, and a freelance space, and that allows me to be logged into, let's say, Asana or Gmail from these different accounts. And so once Arc has has sucked all of these desktop apps into itself and become the sole app that you actually need running on your computer, my doc right now looks like. Finder, Arc, Trash Can, <laughs> <And> That's it. <laughs> that's awesome. And so, yeah, it's wild. Oh, well, I guess Zoom because of this meeting, but usually sure. it's those three things. And the implications of this are that Arc has become a meta OS that sits between your true operating system and all of the applications that run on top of it. And when you have this meta OS that command a lot of power, and they also, it allows for a lot of opportunity with what they can do with the data. So they have this little thing called notes, which are effectively um, like Apple notes, but within your browser. And so you can create a new tab that is a note tab, and you can just type your notes into it. And it just kind of sits there in your in your tabs. Um, you know, easily accessible. You can close it out, but it's still in the background. So you can quickly search it with a command T um, shortcut. And it got me thinking, what if there was a, what if that notes application actually sat across all of your applications because it sits in the browser. So it can tie into when you're reading a blog, you highlight something, save it to your notes. Next time you go back to that blog, it actually will highlight that note on the page and show you, hey, you've read this before, and here's the note that you took on this particular snippet of text. Or let's say you were inside of Gmail and you have an email that you really like, and you're like, ooh, I need to, uh, I need to save that. I can just highlight it, save it to my notes, and it pull, it aggregates it into a, a single notes layer, right? Um, there are so many other ideas like that. Yep. that arc is already exploring through something called boosts which is man that's a whole nother rabbit trail yeah and it it got me excited just for the future of technology and, and the future of like what's possible um so go read that one i think it's pinned at the top of or toward the top of my uh articles list so if you're curious and and want to give it a read it's a relatively short one um but yeah that's Very probably cool. been my favorite so far Waze is a close second, though. I really enjoyed that one.
0: Those are both great. I'm definitely going to link to both in the show notes. But for sure, thanks for giving us the overview on Arc. That's an awesome one as well. Good stuff. Um, Thank you a ton, Jacob, for being here and sharing your knowledge and experience with what you've done with Check, what you're doing with making product sense. Let us know if there's anything else you'd like to share, but also where folks can go to learn more about each.
1: Thank you, Sean. Yep. So Check is hellocheck.co. And Making Product Sense is makingproductsense.com. Those are two places you can find me. If you uh, want to find me on, on Twitter, Jacob Jolabois, you can just search for my name, you'll find me. Um, as far as resources, uh, just to kind of leave people with, with something they can go check out, um, I highly suggest Founding Sales. It's the book I mentioned earlier. If you're looking into sales and you're not really sure where to start, it really is the best playbook to get up and running with that. Um, the second thing is if you go to makingproductsense.com it's hosted on Substack. Substack is a wealth of information. I have some recommendations there of other newsletters that I personally get a lot of value from. So if you enjoy making product sense, check some of those out. I think you're going to I think you're just going to be overwhelmed with how much value there is out there. So two two great places to start.
0: Amazing. Love it. Thank you Jay Much much appreciated. and I appreciate you being here and recording the episode with me. Absolutely. Thank
1: you so much, Sean. Appreciate the opportunity.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Product Launch. I hope you got value out of it. I like to feature product people on my podcast because that's who I love to help. I'm a product strategist and I can help you scale your business and grow your profit through a product. If you'd like to learn more about how I can help you, email me at sean at nextstep.io That's sean, S-E-A-N, at nextstep, N-X-T-S-T-E-P.io or visit my website at nextstep.io. That's nxtste